So I titled this Missions Implausible. Now the word plausible means possibly true, but maybe not. Maybe that's real and maybe it's not. So implausible means that it's not not feasible, sort of, kind of. Anyway, it was a play on that. And you notice that the, the subtext here is, you know, the Mission Impossible movies, you know how it is, your mission, should you choose to accept it. The Lord Jesus himself told his disciples, basically, your mission, should you choose to accept me, which they already had, is to spread the gospel to every corner of the earth, right? So <clears throat> that may, we kind of read that and we just kind of, I don't know, sometimes gloss over it, maybe don't stop to think about it, but stop to think about this. If this morning I said, okay, this group of people right here, I'm going to give you, I'm not even going to, you've lived, I've taught you, and now what I taught you, you are going to go out and change the world. You are going to take what I've taught you to the whole world, to every corner of the earth. This little group. Now, how, plot, how feasible do you think that is? And, and given the fact that given the fact that I probably disconnected from here, that we're talking about a place in geographically that is, at the time, was, was like nowhere. I mean, the travel routes... Hold on one second. The travel routes in... Oh, the problem's back there, you guys. It gave up. Um, The travel routes... There we go. The travel routes were only those places of trade. I mean, there was the Silk Road, and it went clear into Asia, and there were those that went up into parts of Europe, but not very far. You didn't just go down and climb on a stagecoach or a chariot or an airplane at the airport, and jet to some location to spread the gospel. This had to organically work its way around the world. So it would seem, humanly speaking, that it was something that was plausible. That, oh, wow, well, that that might work and it might not. I mean, it could be, I don't know if that's going to work. But it obviously worked because we're here. That was way over there, and we're here. And we are followers of the Lord Christ who told that little band of 11 people, go, go do this. Now, just to, um, just to kind of run through this quickly, I, 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 we're, we're a missions-minded church, but I just want to run over this real quick. Whatever. <clears throat> we, um, it, it is difficult to go and be a missionary. But yet, are we not called to be missionaries no matter where we go, right? Aren't we? Yeah. Amen. Okay. All right, just check to see if you're awake. <clears throat> my, my computer's obviously not awake. And... And it certainly is more difficult to be a missionary when you're in some other land because it's, you're here, it's familiar, 
And there's not a whole lot of challenges to being a missionary here where we are. But let's just think about those challenges that if you uproot yourself and you take yourself to a foreign country that does not speak English, you're going to have some language issues. And one of those language issues is in learning the language, you don't just learn the language, you have to learn the idioms and the context to word usages. Because you can get yourself in trouble. Without even sharing the gospel, you can get yourself in trouble if you don't understand what you're saying or if you use a particular word in a certain context, you can actually say the wrong thing. Here, we know the language. We may not be hep to all of the colloquialisms within any given subculture in our cultures, like how people use slang words and whatnot, but basically we still are able to communicate with each other. In that other language, you have to learn to communicate complex concepts in that language. Because while the gospel is simple, if you're going to a people that have never heard, you have to be able to properly, within the context of their culture and their language, explain theological concepts. That is, the need for a savior, the need for forgiveness. You have to be able to explain those things. And then you have to know the language well enough to speak to life issues because you're going to stay there, you're going to disciple, and you have to be able to speak to life issues within the context of cultural norms. When I was about 20-something, I forget what it was, anyways, in the 70s, I took a trip down to uh, Venezuela to spend about three months in a school for missionary kids. Their parents were missionaries in parts of South America, And this little school, they sent their kids there. And I went down to help a friend and do some work there. Having gotten down there, my visa was only good for about a week, and I had to go through all this bunch of rigmarole to get my visa extended. And to do that, I had to do it in Colombia. I couldn't do it in Venezuela. That was the country I wanted to be in. But I couldn't get my visa extended there. I had to go to Colombia. One of the things I had to do was take a five-hour long-distance taxi cab ride to this country in the middle of the jungle, or to this city in the middle of the jungle, to get it extended. And I'm sitting in this car, and I've kind of by this time, and and we're about three hours into the trip, and I think I've figured out by this time that the driver has contraband in the trunk. And he's kind of trying to outrun the feds because he's got stuff in the trunk here. I, I, I figured this out, but and I'm just thinking, this is it. If they stop us... I'm the only American in this car. Who do you think is going to get blamed? Who do you think is going to spend the rest of their life with cockroaches? So I'm praying pretty hard. And and actually, I thought, thought, you know, going down there, my, my, you know, ability to speak Spanish was decent. My mom spoke it fluently. I'd worked with her over in Takati, and I thought, no, this won't be a problem. But I'm down there, and I'm in this car with these total strangers, actually packed in there, and... We come to the checkpoints, and these checkpoints are all military checkpoints. <clears throat> and uh, my first clue that something wasn't quite right was the driver kept laying money up on the dashboard, and the soldier would reach in and take the money off the dash. And I thought, wow, this, these are funny toll roads down here. <laughs> and, um, and someone, a young guy about my age, is sitting in the front seat, and he turned around and he said something to me. And I thought I understood what he said. And I said... 
oh, oh, see, see, see. And he looked at me quizzically and then went, see? And I thought, wait, what did he say? Oh, no, 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 no. Then he really looked puzzled and he said, no? And then I thought, I have no clue what he said. And then I start stumbling all over myself and saying, oh, yo no sé, yo no sé, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Then he and the guy up front started laughing. At that point, it suddenly hit me, and we're pulling up to another checkpoint. It suddenly hit me. I was a long way from home. I did not have nearly the grasp of the language I thought I had, because I thought I understood that guy, and I didn't at all, and then I didn't have the right response. It would be so easy for those people to mess with me and say something to those guards, and I would be playing pinochle with the cockroaches. And that feeling was a feeling I'd never had before, being so far away from home, being totally at the mercy of whoever was stopping the car or whoever was in the car. It was an education for me. But missionaries, people who go, especially young women, single women, who go to the field to fill spots, that's how it is. You are thousands of Sometimes thousands of miles away from that which you know as familiar. So you do have to have a grasp of the language, and you do have to be able to discuss, you know, things in that. Then there's the culture you have to learn. The learning curve is sometimes harder for women in these cultures because in most places in the world that you're going to be a missionary, there are much greater, well, there are just restrictions on what women can do and say and where they can go. So Learning the culture for women is sometimes harder. Men just get to kind of run around anywhere and do whatever. How and what to do, when, and when not to. It's, it, it gets a little complicated in the culture. What to wear and what not to wear, when and where. So you're learning the language. You're learning how to dress. You're learning where to go, where not to go. And then, of course, there's the environment. And the environment can be dangerous. There's bugs, snakes, and animals. We have some bugs and snakes and animals here, but, you know, not so much. Then there's dangerous socio-political situations. Most places in the world that you go today, there's one of, there, there is some sort of socio-political danger or potential danger. The, the Babalolas. Even the Rogers. The turmoil in those countries that they're at is dangerous, deadly. It can be. And, and quite frankly, anywhere they go, it's a jungle out there, regardless of whether it's an arid environment or it actually is a jungle. I understand some of these are, this environment here is, we think it's becoming like that here. Sociopolitically, it is a jungle out there, and there are dangerous bugs, snakes, and animals, but we call them politicians. <clears throat> just a joke, just a joke. I appreciate them. But this mission that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples and has given us, there are objectives to that mission that he gave us, and that is to disciple, there are three of them, to baptize and to teach. That's what he told them just before he left. He said, I want you to go out of here, and I want you to teach and baptize and disciple. Okay, so I don't think the disciples have probably done too much of that. They'd already been out on sort of a foray that the Lord had sent them out on. 
but they're kind of going, oh, oh okay, I, I think we can do that. Wait, you're leaving? They probably panicked at that point because it's like, well, it's up to us? Of course, the Lord Jesus assured them, don't worry. I'll send you my helper. Don't panic. I'll send you my helper. The mission parameters, those are the mission objectives. The mission parameters are that we have to love. That This is the mission parameters are what it's going to take to get the mission accomplished. We have love like Christ, share Christ, and live like Christ. Now, we talked about those things that when you uproot yourself here and go to some unfamiliar geographical location, you have all of those challenges, and that's hard. It's easier for us to be missionaries here. However, these parameters, regardless of where you are, here or there, are the hardest part of the mission. It's absolutely the hardest part of the mission. Why? Because you have to love like Christ, you have to live like Christ in order to effectively share Christ. Because you see, where we're at here, it's our mission field is our family. Our mission field is maybe our workplace. Our mission field may be the store or other things that we're involved in. And usually, but it's this way also for missionaries on the field, it's the close contact with individuals where this becomes the most important. Where they are watching to see, and missionaries will tell you this, because when they come into a new area, they're like under a microscope, because they want, the, whether they're natives or it's just an unreached people group that's not in the jungle or something, they're watching to see what they're telling them if it jives with how they live. So this is the hardest part of our mission. You know, in Mark 12, 30, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That sounds simple. All you have to do, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord. But it's not simple, is it? It's not simple because too many other things vie for our affection, vie for our love. So it's not that simple. But that's the, that's the commandment that's at the top of the list. And you would think that we could devote our lives to that, and it wouldn't be that difficult. Because if you think about it, that's great. And I wish that's all I had to do, and all I had to do was spend my time learning to do just that. But that's not life here on this planet, is it? Because life gets in the way of us doing that. So we have to learn to do it while we're living. And it's not enough, it's not enough just to know that God is love. It's not enough just to say that we love God. It's not even enough just to understand that and know how to communicate it. But we have to believe it. We have to respond to it, and we have to live it so that the world can see it. This is a quote from uh, J.B. Phillips in his book, Making Men Whole. Yet though we are blind and ignorant and stupid, it is, a, it is of unspeakable comfort and gives rise to unspeakable hope in our hearts to know not only that God is wonderful and beautiful and good, but that he actually is that strange quality which lives in our innermost heart, love itself. And that's, that's profound, and that's true, is it not? But we don't really stop to think about it that way. 
even less that we live that way. That the gift, excuse me, the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus left us with allows us to comprehend and understand that that thing that resides within us is the love of God. And if you really think about that, shouldn't that change our lives? Shouldn't it? Isn't that part of that transformation, that transforming, not being conformed, but transformed? That's what that is. But if we don't grasp that, if that doesn't become a way of life for us, if it doesn't have a way to show itself, express itself in our life, then when we speak of God's love, it's almost hollow when we share the love of God with someone else. Because if it's not true, I mean, yeah, you know, there's been a couple of times in my life when I fell for some of these multi-level marketing things and I tried to sell some of that stuff. And you can learn the pitch and you can, but you know what? I was never good at it because I never 100% believed in what I was telling them because there was always something wrong with it. And I just couldn't sell it. So I was rotten at it. But surely, surely, if we believe with our whole heart, then it's not a problem. We should be able to sell, share the gospel with anybody, anywhere. Because we're convinced of it. We're convinced of it. John 13, 34, and 35, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, Christ gave us our identifying mark. As we love God and as our love for Christ grows, then we should be loving one another. And our identifying mark is not some birthmark. It's not some stamp on our forehead or something that that makes it evident to the world that we belong to Christ. Jesus made it clear. This is how the world will know. And this is only how the world will know. That you love one another. And if you love one another, what do you not do? Fuss and fight. Yeah, okay. Sisters and brothers, when they're growing up, they fuss and fight, but they always make up and things are all patched up, right? Or else. But this is our defining mark, is love for one another. When I worked in construction and I ran uh, construction jobs, um, when a new sub and, and new guy's electrician or plumber or whatever it was, they'd be on the job for a few days and... In about a week, they'd figure out, they, they'd kind of assess me, and they'd kind of figure it out, and they'd go, um, okay, I know this guy. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't chew, he doesn't go with girls that do. Uh, yeah, and he doesn't swear. And invariably, they would ask me, they'd say, hey, Kim, are you a Mormon? And I usually would, at first, I would be offended by that, because it was like, wait a minute, why didn't you ask me if I was a Christian? Why is it because, why why did you ask if I was a Mormon? 
And it took me a while to figure, and I, I, my response became, yeah, I'm more man than you think, but, and they would laugh about that. But I finally, it, I finally realized, and I figured it out, because a lot of these guys, in, in, consequent, in conversations with them, a lot of them had Catholic backgrounds, so they considered themselves to be Christians. And man, they were worse than sailors with their language. And yeah, they drank and they partied. So they were a Christian, and they didn't conform to that standard. So their standard, they certainly wouldn't have guessed me to be a Christian because the only people they know that conformed to a standard like that was Mormons, and I figured it out. And so it soon became that when they were in the other room and they dropped a tool on their foot or something, and they said, Jesus Christ, but not to call on him, but to use it as a profanity, I was quick to say, oh, you know him too? And they would always be, what do you mean? i say, you just said Jesus Christ. I know him, do you? Oh, oh then they'd be embarrassed. Oh, yes. And I'd say, why didn't you say Buddha? What? Well, you said Jesus Christ. Why don't you say Buddha or Mohammed or something? Oh, I don't know. I never thought about that. And then it would lead to conversations. But <clears throat> the mark in our, and those were, you know, casual conversations and casual relationships where they're on the job and they're off the job. And those work differently than those ongoing conversations that we have with people close to us in our life as, as we share the gospel with them. But that mark, that mark of us getting along within the body and loving one another tells the world a lot because how can you say that you're telling them about a God of love and you can't love one another? That is incongruent. It's not going to make any sense, right? I said, wait, you, it's the love of God poured out in your hearts, but you can't love one another? It doesn't work. <clears throat> the next thing is sharing Christ. That's our, that's our other thing is sharing Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's really this simple. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but it's really this simple. All you're doing is inviting people to be reconciled. Making them aware that there's a problem, that they're unreconciled. But really, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings, our wrongdoings, against us. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel. That's the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's really how simple sharing the gospel is. Somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? Or what do you do for a hobby or something? Well, I'm in the reconciliation business. Or, oh, I go around trying to reconcile people. What? That's an easy conversation starter. But that is all that we're doing. We're telling people that they need to be reconciled to God whether they know it or not, and we make them aware of it. Then we need to live like Christ. This is the other hard one. Even though sharing Christ is, for some, difficult, for others it's not. 
Brothers, it's as natural to weave the gospel into a conversation. And not just with total strangers. Tob has been witnessing to someone at work for how many years, Tob? Yeah, Andy. About 10 years. Conversation after conversation, Tob just keeps after him and after him. Sometimes he wants to, Andy wants to hear it, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he has questions, sometimes he doesn't. Tob keeps after him. Be reconciled to God. That's really all that Tob is doing, is saying, Andy, you've got to be reconciled to God. Ah, nah, nah, nah. But someday, we pray that it is. Living like Christ, but I say to you, Jesus said, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a different life. This is a different life that we're to live in Christ. Loving your enemies. This is not some small matter. When you can find a video on YouTube of a whole congregation in a church, I don't even know what church it was, I don't want to know, chanting a slogan that is a known cultural immoral profanity in regard to the sitting president of the United States, how on earth is that loving? Is that the love of Christ? And not that the president's our enemy. But when we're supposed to be loving our enemies, how could anybody sitting in a church naming the name of Christ do such a thing? That is absurd. That is an abomination. That's like, what is wrong with you? You are obviously more committed to the gospel of politics than you are the gospel of Christ. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment, the first greatest commandment, you know, love the Lord your God. That would be fun. That seems easy enough to do. Oh, but the rubber meets the road when you have to love your neighbor. Oh, wow, I have to love my neighbor? That guy next door or that guy at work? or that? But you don't understand, this guy is a jerk. You don't understand what this guy did to me. Doesn't matter. And Jesus in Luke records it this way, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Wait. Wait, isn't that just kind of like giving somebody something? Yep, that is. And your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High because that's what it is to live Christ. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Oh, God is grateful or, or uh, is... Uh, is kind and generous with ungrateful and evil people. So should we be? How could we be anything less? And of course, Paul, living like Christ in Galatians 2.20, that famous verse, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. And Paul says in the 21st verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then Jesus said, the one who loves his life loses it and the one who hates his life in this world We'll keep it. So in the economy of spiritual things, and the, uh, recently I was, this is a journal. Actually, when I was t- telling you that story in Venezuela, I, I actually, I, this is part of the journal for that. But when I was much younger and probably more zealous, I'd have to say, I was going to burn the world down for Jesus uh, at one point. But obviously I didn't because the world's not on fire. Um, 
But I kept a journal, and when I was reading in here, I would, I would get these little, I would go on these little rants, and I would preach on paper to myself. And I ran across this, and it was a good reminder. I don't know whether you keep a journal or not. You young people, you should keep a journal. Because you can track your spiritual journey, and you can look back. And it's humorous, actually, but it's also interesting. But one of the things that, that struck me as a 20-something, and this was actually while I was down in Venezuela, was what was I spending my life doing? What was I spending my life for? Was I spending my life to be a tangible? Because, you see, this is how it is. The, for most people, the thoughts of God and heaven and hell are ethereal. They're out here somewhere. They're not tangible. You and I are the tangible representations of God's love for the world. And if we're not spending our life to show that to the world, then the world will never know. They will never know. And sometimes I think that we don't we don't quite see it that way. I know I don't. I, I, I get unfocused, as it were, on what our mission objectives are and what the mission parameters are. It's simple but hard. Live Christ. And we must live Christ in every attitude, in every action, in every word. It is the reality of Christ evidenced in our lives that attracts people to Christ. This is me writing, my, uh, writing this to myself, and I'm... Now I'm saying it to you. Do not name the name of Christ if you are unwilling to live and love like Christ. Don't do it. Don't claim to be a Christian if you can't do that. Because here's the bottom line. I must desire to live Christ and not live Kim. Right? I must desire to do that. And, and what are we going to do? What is... In the scope of things, you know, you can purchase death, but life can't be bought. You can purchase pain and sorrow, but you can't, you, joy can't be bought. War and destruction can be purchased, but peace can't be bought. You can purchase people, but a true friend can't be bought. You can purchase affection, but God's love cannot be bought. It's not a commodity like that. You can purchase the whole world, but still... Lose your soul. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, or it compels us. It pushes us down this path. We are constrained by the love of Christ. Having concluded this, that, no one, that, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for who? Themselves. But for who? Him. Christ. Who died and rose on our behalf. Living, sharing, and loving Christ. Those are the parameters of our mission. And we have to do that. You know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to, I have to go see my oncologist again, and the neuropathy from chemo in my feet is just constant. And I've rehearsed this line, this line that you see up here as the subtitle, because I want to tell him this when he asks me, well, how are the feet? 
and I'm going to tell them that they bug me every second of every minute of every hour of every day. They bug me. And I've kind of turned it around. Yeah, I have, because when it really bugs me and I say that to myself, I say, yeah, but you know what? That's, that's like the mercy of God. It's that constant. The love of God, it's that constant. Ah, those are easy, nice, fluffy things to say. But then as I was thinking about this, oh, this is, this is the hard stuff. To live, to share, and to love Christ. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day is what I need to be doing, what we need to be doing. Young people, how will you spend your life? You know, yesterday was my birthday, and all of us, you know, it's just funny to me because all of a sudden you're whatever the age you are. You've been working at it all year long. You've been working at it for 364 days. You've been working at being another year older. And then all of a sudden, hey, happy birthday. You're, I'm 67. So, and all of a sudden, I'm 67. Wait, I was just 66. Yeah, but not now. You're 67. And now the days will go by, 364 of them, and then all of a sudden, I'll be 68. Young people, that's how life goes. It's Sunday. But tomorrow will be Monday, and before you know it, it'll be Friday, and then it'll be Sunday, we'll be back here together. And that's how life goes. And before you know it, when you were 20-something and writing in a journal and preaching to yourself, all of a sudden, almost in a flash, you've raised a family, and you're standing up here, and you're preaching at yourself what you preached to yourself 40-something years ago. It goes by fast. And you will look back and say, why did I spend my life on that? Why did I spend my time on that? One of the biggest needs in Miss well, here's a, oh, well, it went to sleep. I have a picture of a refugee flow that uh, somebody did in 2016. Most of the refugee flow, and if you could see it, it's just like these streams all in Europe and Asia of refugees being moved all over the place, displaced. It's the gospel moving around. It's opportunities to share the gospel moving all over Europe, some coming to here. And the other slide was this picture of, of the globe, of the, of the continents, and it looks like spider web all over it. It's airline flights. 52,288 flights every single day flying somewhere in the world. When Jesus said to those 11, take the gospel to the whole world, it was less feasible. So the world's changed. Yes, the world's changed. But the mission hasn't changed. Wars, natural disasters move people around, create new opportunities for the gospel. And while there's human suffering involved, there's also salvation involved because the gospel gets into places that it couldn't ever before. So short-term missions is a, and, and, and I'm not dissing short-term missions at all, but I'm going to speak to a larger need. As most mission boards will tell you, short-term is great. It gets some help, and then it exposes people to missions. But the greatest need in missions today is people who will commit their life. 
not, not three months of it, not six months of it, will commit their life to going to the field to share the gospel, to live Christ, to share Christ, and to love Christ by doing that. That's the greatest need in missions. So I just wanted us to be challenged with that, reminded of that, that that is our mission, to take the gospel. Our mission objectives, disciple, teach, baptize. And the parameters are to love Christ, share Christ, and live Christ every single day. Let's pray. Lord God, how inadequate we are when it comes to really, really being able to comprehend the great, great love that you had for us. In the comforts of our culture and our homes, it's easy to forget that there are people all over the world destitute, crying, hurting, in darkness, no hope. Not only no hope because of, because of physical needs, but no hope because there's spiritual darkness. Lord God, make us more sensitive to that, to pray harder, to give more of time and money and thought to the work of your kingdom. Thank you for this time this morning. It is a great thing to be with believers in the body of Christ and the fellowship that we all enjoy. Give us a good rest of the day in Christ's name. Amen.